Uh, today, uh, we had ordinarily ex ex expected Paolo Zanoni, who uh, is a senior partner of Goldman Sachs, uh, to be with us. And it turns out uh, we are a lower priority than a new merger deal. And we'll have him uh, a month from today, uh, which gives us uh, time to pull together a bunch of uh, important uh, details about the institutional foundations of capitalism. And I'm going to use the term wealth maximizing law today. If you think about uh, what courts do and what legislatures uh, at any level from New Haven to the Congress of the United States, they set rules which create incentives and disincentives uh, that affect how people behave. And we're going to do four topics today, but they're all ways of talking about that. I'm going to start with the Coase theorem, which is not in your reading packet. Uh, and neither is it, strictly speaking, a theorem. But it is a foundational set of concepts that Hernando de Soto's book, which we are reading, uh, is built on. De Soto has, in effect, taken the Coase theorem, which is 60 years back, uh, and it won Ron Coase uh, a Nobel Prize uh, about 30 years ago, um, has taken the Coase theorem and applied it to reality in a very lively way. So the theorem is a good thing to have in the background. Uh, second, and very briefly, we're going to look at a law case, which is actually in the syllabus for a little later in term. But I'm going to bring it forward because this is really a good place to, to show uh, its result. It's a case about whaling off Cape Cod in the 1980s. And what's important about it is not the facts of the case, but the way the judge reasoned his decision. Uh, third, we're going to do a De Soto in America, uh, which was uh, the assignment in, in this book for today's class. And finally, we're going to look at some of the finer grained uh, distinctions in the way you can structure a business organization. Coase theorem. It's about this story. This is a story we've all been through, right? Uh, about disputed ownership of property. Now, um, I've noticed a pattern here, and let, let's see if I've got it right or not, that you're always in that third chair from the end of this row. I think all three of you are always in this orientation. Am I right? Okay, and how would it work out if, let's say, Leslie here came a little early next Wednesday and sat in one of those three chairs? It would be horrible. Okay, now, what would be horrible about it? You're all co-equally students in the course. The chairs, so far as I can tell, are identical, except that this one is broken. What's up? Well, I 
okay? <laughs> it's acknowledged as your seat, and the other two of you would say something very like that. Um, you own this one? Okay. Uh, so what we have here is an informal set of property rights. There isn't a law of any kind which refers to these rights, but they are the folkway, folkway norms uh, of our classroom. Now if we press further, let's take, do you live in, in, in your college? In your college? Do you live there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, are there property rights in and around your entryway and in your suite and so on? Yeah. Are they ones written down by the dean's office or by the master? I presume. Are they? Uh, well, I mean, aren't there some that aren't written down? Among our students, perhaps. Well, can you, I'm uh, trying to draw you out on this. And, and would you think of sitting there? No. <laughs> okay. And, and Ray, how does it, does, does your friend here have any rights or not? Um, I have personal not fully going. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're not doing that one this morning, this afternoon. Um, but it actually, it's actually very suggestive, right, that there is that beneath government, outside the actions of the state, there is an enormously intricate system of informal property which governs uh, the way we actually function. And that system of property uh, can be good, bad, or indifferent. It can be just or unjust. It can be notoriously inefficient. And in fact, if you think about uh, the failure of socialist regimes, one important explanation is that the underlying informal norms about what people do with their work lives were never integrated with the planned economies in an effective way. Now, so that's something about formality and informality. I also have here a watch. Um, it says on the top, Movado. Um, it's really very handsome. And I, I really don't need it. I'm thinking of selling it. And does anybody have any, does anybody need a watch? You do? You don't. Um, what is a, what is a, standard Movado watch sell for in a jewelry store? I actually don't know. I should have done my homework. I think it's low hundreds. And I'd be willing to part with this one for 20 bucks. Deal. <laughs> Who says deal? Now be careful. Is it conceivable that the proper retail price of this is less than 20 bucks? I think this one's 
Um, what I, but remember, what I'm trying to demonstrate here is information asymmetry. <laughs> uh, this watch is worth about $8. And uh, it's a, and if I sold it to you, what I would be doing is stealing from the manufacturer, stealing the brand. And one of the curious things about watches these days, uh, by the way, it works fine. Somebody gave it to me for my birthday as a joke. Uh, it keeps, as far as I can tell, perfect time, possibly better time than a real Movado. Uh, and there's an interesting problem about watches, right? Uh, which is better, a $9 Casio, the cheapest imaginable Casio or uh, Timex, or a Rolex, uh, if the question is keeping good time. Pardon? Following the Casio? Yeah. The Rolex is a mechanical movement, a brilliantly designed and executed mechanical movement, and it's not as good as an ordinary electronic watch. Doesn't keep time as well. And yet people are willing to pay uh, thousand to one multiples uh, for the social meaning of the brand. And that means that there's an enormous market for cheaply made watches, gray, gray market watches, or even black market watches, which knock off a brand name uh, and which people, people sometimes buy really thinking that it's the real deal but more often, just thinking it's kind of fun to buy an expensive brand for, say, $20. Well, the Coase theorem is about those issues plus the one where uh, this girl is vexed. And the one where she's vexed is that the property rights to that toy are unclearly marked. I, I have a granddaughter who, is, uh, who got the boss gene from her mother, and she's a first uh, uh, kindergartner. And her first day at school, they got out, they brought, brought out little plastic ants for the children to learn basic arithmetic with, and they put a pile of them on the, in the middle of each table, and then four kids. And uh, my granddaughter came home complaining that the other kids had been mean to her. And so her mother talked to the teacher the next day, and the story was that uh, the, our grandchild had taken all the ants and put them in a pile and then begun negotiating bilateral agreements to give some to the other students. <laughs> They didn't like that. Well, the Coase theorem boiled down is that if you have three conditions, clear initial entitlements to property, and this is, what, this is what's stressed most in the DeSoto book, clear entitlements to property, uh, a high degree of transparency, which is what's missing in the story about the 
bogus Movado watch. Uh, and, um, and, and low transaction costs. Uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics announced um, today, uh, they, they announced two of them, but uh, one of them um, went to Ollie Williamson, formerly a colleague of ours here at Yale, uh, for inventing and elaborating uh, the idea of transaction cost economics. And by transact, we, have we talked a little about transaction costs here? About how hard it is to, do, to get, get a deal made? You know what deal you want to make, uh, but the, all the red tape that gets in the way uh, makes it very difficult to get there. And Kosa's principal point is that in that tiny segment in the middle of the Venn diagram, where these three conditions all obtain, we should expect people to reach efficient allocations of property, no matter what the initial allocation. Now notice I didn't say, and he doesn't say, fair or just allocations, just efficient. And efficient in the sense that people will trade to a point where there are no further opportunities to, uh, for mutual gain, and you get to a so-called Pareto efficient or contract curve outcome. And I'm going to, uh, I don't do this to you very often, but we're going to do this with a, uh, a graphic demonstration. This is an Edgeworth box. I, I used one once before. Is anybody in trouble about how an Edgeworth box is set up? Hum if you are. Okay. So Smith is here, Voltaire is there. Smith gets that much paper and that quantity of pens. Voltaire gets the obverse quantities. If we start at the red dot, uh, Voltaire's entitlements are shown by the blue lines and Smith's by the pink lines. Uh, Voltaire would prefer anything, any outcome beyond this indifference curve going this way, away from his, his point of origin. And Smith would prefer anything that way from the pink indifference curve. So there is a set of outcomes which are clearly superior to the, to the starting point, and they're in that set, that lozenge uh, in shape. And so they will trade to that. And if, the, if we just set it up as this is a rank order account of what Smith wants and of what Voltaire wants, S is that set of outcomes. And those two, S in the two diagrams is the same thing. And ultimately, they'll get to an outcome where the indifference curves are at tangency to one another. So there's no further gain from trade. And there will be a whole set of outcomes that fit that description, forming the contract curve, all those points, and the contract curve will be equivalent 
to this possibility frontier in the other style of diagram. And the, it's a really simple idea. Uh, the way to use the Coase theorem, though, is backward. The Coase theorem is boring. Incidentally, I was talking to my TAs this morning about the first round of memos. And they had only one complaint, that they were often boring. And not, not bad, but there was none of the author's personality in most of them. And you've all learned, you've all learned long since how to write papers in college and get good grades. But you ought to just occasionally put yourself into it. Don't do it the standard way. Just go out on a limb. Now, that's especially true if you don't, want to get, you don't think you need to go to law school, med school, or an MBA. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's actually, I remember, I remember making all the exact same calculations when I was where you are. Um, but a little risk taking in writing actually endears you to those who, who read the, the work. And um, often actually pays off. There's an interesting thing about writing. After, after your BA, uh, taking risks with your writing turns out to be the only way of getting ahead. Standard issue writing pays up to the BA and by and large doesn't pay after that. It's interesting. At any rate, I don't mean to alarm you about your grades, but um, I think it's actually worth thinking about. Um, I've mislabeled this. The top label should read Gen versus Rich. Gen is spelled G-H-E-N. And this is a case about thinking out the incentives to make People behave in productive ways. The story goes as follows. Uh, Gen is a whaler. Um, he operates out of Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Uh, it is 1881. And uh, he spots a finback whale. And sends the little boats out with his... Uh, crew, and they harpoon the whale. Uh, and finbacks are big, uh, fast, aggressive, and they have one further peculiarity. When you kill them, they sink to the bottom of the sea. Uh, virtually all whales float when, when killed. And the general rule of property in whaling is finders, keepers, losers, weepers. You've all heard of that. And the, and the specific uh, method is that after you kill a whale, you either lash it to your ship and tow it to harbor, or, uh, or slice it up and process it at sea, but these boats by and large weren't big enough for that. Or you leave it floating and put a marker on it, and the marker is your, it's your brand. It's like branding cattle. And everybody then is compelled by law to acknowledge that it's your whale. 
But the finback presents a dilemma because neither of those strategies is available to the whaler who kills a finback. And what happened to this particular finback is that it floated up a day or two later uh, on the beach near Wellfleet on Cape Cod. And uh, a gentleman came along and found it and conducted a quick auction. And Ellis uh, bought it. Ellis bought the whale and uh, processed it into uh, whale oil and other byproducts, put them on the market, and at this point, again returned from his voyage and wanted his whale back. So he sued Ellis, a Rich, rather, sorry. Ellis is the guy on the beach who found it. Uh, he sued Rich, who, who had processed the oil, uh, for his money. And what happened was that the judge ruled in favor of Gen and reasoned, well, let me not tell the whole story. Let's suppose you were hired as attorney for the finback whales. The finback whales hire you as a lawyer and they want to get this case to come out so that they will be safe from whaling in the future. How would they have the judge decide the case? Back. Okay, exactly, and why? Okay, perfect. So the judge reasoned, just as suggested, that only by honoring the relatively indirect claim to property, which Gen was urging, could the industry of, of, of whaling for whalebacks be incented so that it would go on in the future. Now, A lot of things we're doing and thinking about are analogous to that. Structuring incentives so that people behave in ways which increase the wealth of society uh, while trying to increase their own wealth, uh, in effect, creating conditions analogous to the invisible hand uh, in Smith is what the judge was doing. And it's, a, it's actually, you should Google it. It's only three pages long. And just read the opinion uh, because it brings out the fundamental issues that we're trying to deal with. Now, DeSoto in America. Um, DeSoto talks in the early parts of the book, which we read at the opening of term, DeSoto talks mainly about emerging market countries. And the gist is that they are loaded with dead capital. Uh, can somebody help us with the, the notion of dead capital?
Here we go. Okay. Okay, so the, the house, so now let's, let's take the chair you own here. Is it dead capital or live capital? Uh, well, it's not allowed to me because I don't own it, but to the university maybe? Uh, okay, okay, that's well put. And we, we will in fact look at the title to this room in a few minutes. The, um, um, DeSoto's idea is that in an informal system of property, which has not been integrated with a governmental system of property, people have capital, but it is dead in the sense that it can't be used for collateral against a loan. And if it is sold, there is no way to enforce the contract on the sale, except mafia style. And mafia style often doesn't work out all that well. So the, the chapter we read for today is about the proposition that the advanced economies didn't get to having live capital all at once. It came through a long process. And DeSoto in this chapter uh, talks through the informal practices of property which grew up in uh, mining camps in California, uh, in agricultural communities in Iowa and other Midwestern states, in uh, uh, claims to land in uh, colonial America. And what I'd like to do is start at the present and then work our way back. Uh, this is a property map of our present neighborhood. This is an official government map from the, the place where deeds are kept at 200 Orange Street in New Haven. And in every community in the United States, you will find a set of deeds and a corresponding set of maps similar to this one. I'll dissect this and enlarge parts of it and so on as we go. Uh, you'll find uh, these maps uh, are quite ubiquitous. Now, this one has the peculiarity that in some parts of the city they've drawn in the buildings. And it turns out that, that's, there, that, that has happened where there is a wealthy institution that paid to have it done, familiar to all of us, uh, and not where there isn't a wealthy institution that would pay to have it done. The green lines represent property parcels. And all this is entirely accessible. Uh, if you go, if you Google vision appraisal, one word, uh, vision, vision appraisal New Haven, uh, you'll get all these files. And you'll get a photograph of every structure to go with it. 
And here we have a particular parcel that uh, includes and surrounds this building. And there's a close-up of the building, and we're in the, you can see the match there. And let's look at four, three properties first, and then we'll look at some more. And we'll see how structures of ownership get built around the formalized property parcels. Um, 61 High Street is this building. Anybody know what 64 High Street is? No idea? What's the small, stone, small brownstone building across the way? Skull and Bones. Okay, and Skull and Bones turns out for property purposes to be called the uh, Russell Trust. And we'll look at that. And 41 High Street, I was just there, uh, is Starbucks and some other property above it. And let's look at Well, I, I, 1066 Chapel is actually Starbucks. I was mistaken in what I said a minute ago. 41 High is the building right behind Starbucks. And this is what you find on the land records. So this building is parcel 14188, uh, map 261, block 252. It has an effective total area and this, is, this means places you could do anything with. And this would count every, every uh, square foot of indoor or outdoor space. And it totals a little over 100,000, of which 9,259 is heated indoor space. Um, its asserted value from the city is 2.68 million. Um, uh, for the land, 4.97 for the building, 7.65 altogether. Uh, and of that 7.65, 7.65 is exempt from taxes in the city. And that's a point of interest to the city. And uh, what I'm trying to do, get you to do is just get into the details of this stuff and see how interesting it is. Uh, the net value to the city for tax purposes is zero owner, Yale University. Now, compare this to 1066 Chapel, uh, where the numbers are smaller because the, the buildings are smaller and, and they're nowhere near as good. Um, the net taxable value is half a million dollars. The owner, is something called Chapel Investments LLC. And Chapel Investments LLC is owned by people I know, the Warwick family. And they own four parcels over there, including the one in which Caesar Pelly has his architectural office and so on. And it is organized as a taxable corporation, a taxable LLC, which is this is a hybrid, a hybrid form, which we'll get to at the, the end of the hour. Now, 
let's take the value of this building and the way it looks to Yale and the city. Uh, if we wanted to mark to market Lindsley Chittenden Hall, we want to say, what would this building really sell for? This building and the land in question. How would we go about that? Who's got an estimate? More or less than $7.65 million? More. Who said more? Okay. Can we get him a mic? Oh, there we go. Um, why do you think so? Okay. Is it been, does it look like it's well maintained? Mm -hmm. uh, might buying this have any resemblance to buying a Movado watch of this description? Let's suppose I want to run a, some kind of a uh, commercial educational institution. What would this building be worth if I were, suppose I were going to run something which was aimed at uh, wealthy kids with bad test scores. Yeah, I might name it Ray College at Yale. That has a ring to it, right? Uh, and the building used that. That might be the highest and best use of the building. Anybody else got a thought about what? Yes, Tom, is it? I am. Well, unless I can get it made into a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, in which case I might get away with not paying taxes. Um, so any, any other use anybody can imagine for this thing? Oh, come on. Yes. Well, I mean, a lot of, you, can we think of anything unrelated to education you could do with this? Could it be a resort? I'd make it a movie theater. Pardon? I'd make it a movie theater. You'd make it a movie theater. Well, I got to tell you, I think that's a really bad idea. If you study the current economics of movie theaters, don't do it. Um, uh, anybody else? Well, that's right. And, and that, by the way, is a good reason to think that they're not going to sell it for any price that we could even imagine capturing the value from. I, I think that's right. Now, uh, the other property is probably already, the, the Starbucks one is probably already 
uh, pretty much at highest and best use and is therefore uninteresting. Now let's think about the properties on the other end of the block across Chapel Street, the end uh, down toward the New Haven Green. And there's a large assembly. There are about uh, 15 parcels down there. I picked out three. And they all look like this. They all belong to something called the Chapel Company. Who can make a guess what the Chapel Company might be? Well, I'll tell you. It's, it, it, yes? How, how perceptive. Okay, here's the story. Um, 25 years ago, a Yale College alum named Joel Schiavone, who is an irascible and brilliant fellow. Yale Co he has the same educational pattern as Jim Alexander here, Yale College, Harvard Business School. Um, he bought, it was a slum, all these, this whole area down here was a commercial slum. The buildings were in disrepair. They were being used for um, very marginal purposes. And he bought the whole thing up for not very much and began renovating it. And the renovation model was small retail. Small retail with quality um, um, residential on the second and third floors. And we're talking about places like the Union League and Claire's Cornucopia and the Schubert Theater and the Taft Hotel, now the Taft uh, Condominia. Uh, he fixed it all up and made it really sing. And it, one of his precepts was every, every property should be leased to somebody who owns their own business and is willing to work really hard at making it work. So he didn't go after chains, he went after entrepreneurs. Uh, and the thing really worked beautifully. But Schiavone is one of these guys who, can, he's got the spirit of Schumpeter about him. Can never leave well enough alone. So he gets interested in other things and leverages the new things by taking further mortgages on all this property. And then in the 1980s, there is a huge real estate um, recession and he loses it all to a federal, a fed, the federal government buys all the property for very little and then auctions it off through something called the RTC. And Yale hires a guy named Joe Fahey, who was a student of mine at SOM at the time this happened. He now runs all of Disney's real estate. And Fahey invented the Chapel Company and bought all of Schiavone's property uh, on Yale's behalf for about 25 cents on the dollar. And Yale has had the, the good judgment, in my opinion, to leave it all functioning as, as if it were private commercial property. And the neighborhood is uh, strengthened enormously by that. Uh, and Yale, Yale does not make a lot of money at it, but it indirectly gets a lot of benefit by having a strong commercial neighborhood abutting the campus. Now we're not quite ready for that. Um,
Well, let's, uh, let's not use the maps, but let's do, uh, let's talk about properties uh, further up in the middle of campus. I'd like you to focus on 140 High Street and 306 York Street. 140 High Street is the Yale Law School. And its taxable value is $42 million. That's the building, not the institution. Um, across York Street is Morris, or more exactly, the Morris Trust. What do you think Morris is worth? Well, the tax estimate is $400,000 and a little bit. Who would be prepared to buy Morris for $400,000? No takers? Anybody tempted? Okay, why are we so cautious about Morris? Pardon? Why are we cautious about Morris? It closed its doors on December 19th last year. What's wrong with that? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sure a rundown neighborhood. You got the Yale Hall of Graduate Studies, Morrison <laughs> Styles. Okay. Okay. I am its. I am the chairman of the group that, in fact, owns it. And <laughs> I'm going to try not to take offense at the way you guys value it. <laughs> um, we're investing three million dollars in it over the next four months. And um, we plan to open it and have all of you clamoring to get through the front door or the back door, which will be the whip and poof bar. Um, now, in evaluating it, you do have to take into account lots of things that aren't bricks and mortar. And I'm glad you said what you said. You're, you're blaming the neighborhood for what is in fact a spectacularly mismanaged business, right? I mean, how, did anybody eat in Maury's last year? Can, you, can we get the mic to this lady? We're gonna do a, a okay, on a one to five star basis, what's the rating? Compared to food that costs about the same thing uh, on the private market. A three? Okay. The fun part was the singing, the memorabilia, the cockroaches. No, I'm kidding. Um, but the food was notorious. Right, it was really bad. And how well did they do at serving drinks? I mean, horrible. <laughs> there was no bar. The tables down at Maury's had no bar. Um, and 
it failed partly because it was very badly managed. It was managed by 15 Yale alumni, not one of whom knew anything about business. That's a little harsh. Not one of whom knew anything about business except for being a stockbroker, which is a pretty abstract business, right? There are no cooks in a brokerage house. Um, the other side of it, and we'll actually do this case before we're done, the other, the other side of it was a highly restrictive labor union contract with Local 217 of Unite Here. And that contract um, doesn't go away when you close the door. Turns out under Connecticut labor law that the contract, if you reopen a restaurant there, you would normally expect you would have to honor the contract. Now it turns out we have a loophole that's gonna get us a more, a better deal than that. And I'll give you an idea of what the, so what that means is that given the labor law, the value of the building is affected by the existence of the union contract. It becomes almost like paint in the way it adheres to the thing. And it included, uh, for example, a provision that there should be four people called cashiers who count the cash each night. Um, only one on duty each night, they rotated. They were all part-timers. Uh, one of them was a full-time teacher at a local high school. And they were required that you, we were required to pay them four hours for each appearance. And each appearance was, how much cash do you think you take in these days in a restaurant of that kind? None. There might on a good night be $100 to count. But the contract obliged Morris to employ these guys. And worse yet, to pay them vacation time. So we have a high school teacher being paid five days of vacation time by Morris while he is on vacation, paid vacation, from the Branford school system. That's a deal. Um, so analyzing what gets built on this framework is a little complex. Um, let's go through the big story in DeSoto uh, about the, the informal property systems in the United States. Can anybody summarize it for us in 100 words? Got a taker out there? Are you headed for a taker? No. Oh. Okay. Uh, I'll do it. Um, the system of property is built on nation states. Nation states are the underlying unit. And when you have a frontier society, uh, which the United States remained until about 1880, you have a vast area where there is effectively no state. Or if there is a state, it is a very weak state with very limited capacities to enforce any property system. 
And the, the key Green versus Biddle case, which arose in Kentucky, asserted the following. It said, informal property rights count for nothing. Only formal property rights issued by a part of the United States government at either the federal or the state level count as real. Uh, this provoked a rebellion that included violence. Uh, it also created an enormous inefficiency because the existing informal system of property rights based on preemption and occupation, so-called tomahawk rights or cornfield rights, you occupy the land, improve the land, demonstrate that you're making a living from the land and it becomes yours. Homesteading was the name for it. And in 1862, the Homestead Act adopted into federal law that system of informal law and made an integration between the two levels. The, the wealth that was built in the United States uh, in, the, in everything outside the original East Coast colonies uh, is built up on that peace treaty between formal and informal. The, uh, he does a brilliant job, DeSoto does, with the mining camps in California and with the uh, land claim associations in the Midwest. And you can read the details for yourselves. Uh, but the gist is that a well-functioning system of property will have both the formal and the informal rights uh, in sync with one another, not in tension with one another. And if we go finally to uh, the finer details of business structure, we're done now. I'll use this at the beginning of class on Wednesday. Uh, I'll talk about how Maury's is being restructured. And you should, uh, the case as scheduled for Wednesday is the one about the mortgage meltdown in Cleveland, Ohio. And the URL has been posted on Classes V2.